Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm today's host, Alok Tai. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Vibe Bio. Vibe partners with patient communities to develop novel therapeutics. I'm really fortunate to be joined today by Cleanthus Zanthopoulos, the chairman and CEO of Shoreline Biosciences. Today, we'll be talking a little bit about cell therapy, the work they're doing at Shoreline to bring therapies to the clinic, as well as his view and vision for the next decade of biotech innovation. Cleanthus, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. My pleasure to be here. You know, maybe to start us off, we'd love it if you could perhaps give us a quick intro to yourself and your background and how you got to where you are today. I grew up in an, in an environment where I was very interested in science. I had the pleasure uh, to have some wonderful mentors that guided me through uh, my education. And as you know, science is very seductive. It's fertile ground for curious minds. And especially I was growing up in the era of molecular cloning and molecular biology really transforming the way we think about creating medicines. Now, on the other hand, I think genetically imprinted to be also a merchant banker. I grew up in Greece, so, you know, being a business person is in our blood. I always remember trading things. So in many aspects, I had two parallel careers, one in, in science and one in business. And given that, I really enjoyed taking my academic path where I did my master's, PhD, postdoctoral, became a, an associate professor at the Karolinska Nobel Medical Institute in Sweden, and then came to the United States to participate at the Human Genome Project at the National Institute of Health. In parallel, I was involved in, in the technology transfer office of the Karolinska. We launched a couple of companies. And I enjoyed it immensely, but it came a point where biotech was becoming more of a passion and thinking of combining the business of science is the best way to do this is transition to biotechnology full time. I found the opportunity by coming to San Diego after being recruited by a company called Aurora Biosciences, which eventually was bought by Vertex and was the driver of their cystic fibrosis franchise. And following that, I have been very fortunate to be involved in launching five different companies, with the fifth being Soreline. And really, it's one of them unique and exciting, but super, super excited to be part of the Soreline team with a vision to really not just open up a war against cancer, but also eventually win that with unique medicines that are transformative in how we treat different humors. It's amazing. Well, really excited to have you on. And I didn't realize that you were involved with a lot of the early CF work. Uh, you know, it's definitely a story that I'm somewhat familiar with. And obviously, I think has helped chart the course for venture philanthropy and patient community involvement in drug development. Yeah, Aurora was critical, I think, to the success of Vertex with initial innovative ideas. And my colleagues at Aurora have developed some wonderful screening techniques and I've had the support from the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, among others, to, uh, to advance this program. So it was an enormously rewarding thing to see that that original effort resulted in ultimately a number of drugs now that help CF patients. Yeah, multiple billions of dollars in revenue, but more importantly, I think to be able to manage the, at least 90% of the cases out there, right, which is phenomenal. That's great. So, you know, with that, obviously, we can spend all day talking about your, your storied career, but would love to actually maybe start focusing in on the cell therapy, say, specifically. Obviously, it's been something that's been in the zeitgeist more recently, but has been around as a modality for quite some time. Would love if you can give us just a little bit of a history of the cell therapy space and how it's evolved, um, and we can go from there. 
In its pure form, cell therapy was initially implemented with the pioneering work of bone marrow transplantation, because you really, if you think about it, you're looking for a, a donor, you match the HLA profiles of the donor to the patient, and then you introduce cells that eventually repopulate the bone marrow of the patient. That's now, you know, been in the works for over 50 plus years. And so in many aspects, we had the groundwork of what cell therapy means, how do we deploy it in the clinic? And we had some phenomenal results. But it wasn't until maybe 10, 15 years ago when the original work at the National Cancer Institute with essentially approaching T-cells and thinking maybe we can arm these T-cells with chimeric antigen receptors and reintroduce them to the patient in an autologous fashion so that we can fight specific hematological tumors. And two companies pioneered that original technology, original concept. Those companies, of course, Kite and Juno, and then 10, 12 years later, we have some incredible clinical responses. We saw overall complete responses growing from the mid-20s to over 60s for certain hematological tumors. And now we have five approved cell therapy drugs. Now, as anything else, when you're talking about a new revolutionary technology, you have to think about it in waves. That was cell therapy 1.0. That had a lot of successes, but also was limited for a variety of reasons. One significant side effects to difficulties of really expanding those cells that you take from patients that doesn't always work. The time that it takes to start with leucophorising the patient and then growing these cells and putting them back, typically three to four weeks. Many of these patients are so critically ill, they don't have three to four weeks. And lastly, of course, the cost of goods of manufacturing. So side effects, cost of goods, timing, all of these have restricted the broad adoption of these autologous CAR-Ts. They work wonderfully and they will continue to work. But I think for the next wave of cell therapies, we need to think differently. And this is where Shoreline comes in. What our vision is essentially started with one of our co-founders has been a key opinion leader for decades now, Dan Kaufman, an MD-PhD professor here at University of California, San Diego, and Professor of Regenerative Medicine. So what Dan has devoted his entire life in developing functional hematopoietic cells from stem cells, originally hematopoietic stem cells, and in the last decade or so from pluripotent stem cells. And if you now think about this, and if we're able to start with a universal donor that is in our freezers, that we can use in an allogeneic fashion, meaning we use these cells for any and all patients, then Cell therapy 2.0 looks like any other drug. If it's in our freezers, we can take it, we can use it, we can diagnose the patient, decide on the treatment paradigm, and then take these cells out of the freezer and infuse them into the patient. That's exactly our vision. Furthermore, Sirline has accumulated a number of wonderful new technologies that allows us to take pluripotent stem cells and differentiate them into two different effector cells, natural killers and macrophages. And in each one of these, we arm these cells to become targeted, effective, and safe against specific tumors. And that's our bigger vision, to see these broadly accepted and broadly available to all patients in throughout the world in community hospital settings, not just very specialized academic hospitals. Yeah, wonderful. You know, given your business acumen, you know, one thing I think that might be interesting to help the listeners, Grok, would be the differences in manufacturing cost and effort between even just small molecules, right, and biologics and cell therapies. 
but then more importantly, how you sort of see this allogeneic approach juxtaposing with the, say, half dozen or so existing cell therapies that have been approved? Yeah, that's a very good question, Alok. And you look at anything else when you evaluate it from the business perspective, there's a range of things. And starting with the cheapest cost of goods is, of course, creating small molecules, right? Uh, typically, very broadly available methods and you can synthesize these molecules at incredibly competitive prices. As you look then at the spectrum in increasing level of complexity and cost, you go to peptides, from peptides, you go then to macromolecules, you go to antibodies, to RNA therapeutics and cellular therapeutics and gene therapies. Particularly then, and, and cell therapies as our gene therapies are at the very high end. And they are at the very high end of expense because A, there are customized and essentially the autologous autologous production of these cells is personalized medicine. You go to the patient, you take their white cells, you isolate their T cells, you then in the laboratory expand them, arm them with the so-called chimeric antigen receptors, make them under quality standards that would be acceptable to then go back and reinfuse them to the patient. That is an enormous amount of both technical, practical, and logistical challenge, and it costs time and a lot of money. Time for typically three to four weeks to do this for each patient. That is fortunate that some of the patients don't have three to four weeks. In about eight to 10% of the cases, we fail to be able to expand these cells. Simply, they are not fitted enough to be expanded. At least we're not able to do that in the laboratory. And that's why you see these very high prices where cell therapies are now approximately three to 400,000 per dose. But it is, of course, a single dose. And of course, it has a huge potential effect on patients as we discussed. Our vision is different. Our vision is because we start with the universal donor, the pluripotent stem cell, we make all these manipulations and we have these cells in our refrigerators and our freezers rather. It's the same cell for every and all patient. That's why we call them allogeneic therapies. And we call them standardized because they literally our vision is to use them as regular drug. Like you take a pill, you just go to the freezer and the, the medical staff there will infuse those cells to the patients and that concludes the portion of the treatment. That also gives us a huge competitive advantage in terms of the cost of goods. Because it's a universal donor, we are logarithm unit lower than the autologous cells that I described before. So we have both a competitive advantage in terms of cost of goods, the timing, because those are in the freezers. We don't need to do it in a personalized fashion because it's allogeneic. And as it turns out, because we're focusing on a different effector cell, natural killers and macrophages, as opposed to T cells, it turns out that T cells are safer. They have now in the clinic over 500 plus patients have received NK cells. And collectively, we see that they are much safer than the T cells. Now, there are other challenges associated with NK cells. We need to think about redosing. They don't stay as long as T cells. T cells stay around for months, sometimes years. In NK cells, you're talking about weeks, but that's the beauty of some of the technologies Soreline is developing, where we extend the durability and the persistence of our cells. And also because of the safety profile that is so much better than the T cells, we think that you'll be able to dose again and again, as opposed to a single dose where you currently are doing with the T cells. Wonderful. Well, you know, obviously it seems like a lot of promise and hopefully being able to tackle some of the challenges that exist from a scaling perspective, right? 
with that, would love to hear a little bit more about Shoreline's programs. You know, I know you recently publicized a very large round of financing. So I'd love to hear a little bit about the programs, some of the partnerships you have, as well as what you sort of foresee for the next 12 to 18 months for the company. Shoreline was launched in 2020 from um, essentially a brainchild of several individuals, including myself, Dan Kaufman, Bill Sanborn, Steve Holtzman, and, and myself, with a shared vision of really declaring war against cancer and using innovative immunotherapies. And of course, a lot of this had to do with the work that Dan Kaufman has been doing in his laboratory over the last couple of decades, but also collectively the era of cell therapies, particularly allogeneic cell therapies, and the conviction that we can make a difference and create transformative medicines for oncology. That vision was very quickly appreciated by really some outstanding investors. So the company raised very quickly, collectively, $186 million from investors. And then in the process of doing that, we were very fortunate to enter into two very strategic partnerships, one with Kite Gilead and another one with Beijing, brought additional capital. So the, the company is very well capitalized with other $300 million in assets and importantly, now bring the expertise of Kite and Beijing into our portfolio. And then collectively now the three companies are supporting a, a very aggressive, but we think realistic clinical portfolio of about 10 different programs, all of them in oncology, both in hematological and solid humors. This year, we have declared the road to the clinic. We're preparing multiple programs moving forward, identifying clinical candidates, involving pre-IND, clinical toxicology studies, doing the package uh, that uh, is required to, uh, to apply to the FDA for clearance to enter the clinic. So that's the road to the clinic. Starting next year, we see at least two programs reaching the clinic, and that cadence will continue for years to come. So at least two programs every year will be entering the clinic starting in 2023. We are very excited because, A, we think we have the unique cell types supported by technologies that we have developed are proprietary to Shoreline. And those are supported also by a lot of both intellectual and technical support by our partners in Kite and Beijing. Amazing. Now, uh, when you sort of look at the financing landscape today, it's, I'd imagine, probably changed a lot since you maybe started in the field. We'd love to kind of hear what some of your thinking is around the financing side of things especially from a partnership perspective, right? Sounds like you're able to lock up some key partnerships very early on and how that sort of fits in. So it's interesting, Alok, on two aspects. Partnerships with the bigger companies in the early decade that fueled the growth of our, of our industry, right? It was not only financial support, but it was also validation. That continues to this day. However, things have changed dramatically in qualitative terms. Now you see partnerships where there is shared risk and reward profiles. We're not necessarily a small biotech struggling financially to survive where you actually give your, not just your firstborn, but your half a dozen first members of your family. So you're now creating partnerships like we've done, for example, with Beijing, where for two of the four programs that we initially have collaborating with, we'll have exclusive rights for US and Canada and we'll receive royalties for these two territories. That was very unusual to see 20, 30 years ago. The other thing that has happened is that we have increased the amount of capital that has come into our sector by a very significant, it's hard to quantify 
I feel often that we're adding a zero to what used to be a very good financing, right? So that is the result of two things. The success that we have as an industry to create innovative drugs and do them again and again, year after year. Uh, two, significant returns to investors that have attracted new capital coming in. And three, perhaps more importantly, the development of specialized funds that started 20 some years ago, focusing exclusively on healthcare and biotech with people who really understand the science, who understand the risk profile of the company and can reward and support companies with big ideas on a calculated risk analysis basis. That's what we've seen. So the number of specialized funds has significantly expanded and such we've seen that to be now the result of more and more capital coming into the industry. Look, not less than 15 years ago, the average IPO raised 50, 60 million dollars. If that were to be an IPO today, people will say something was went very, very badly for that company. It's simply we're seeing an average in the three digits and, and above. And in the heydays of 2020, you saw, you know, the average IPO moved to closer to 200. So there is a very significant shift, and that's good for the industry. Yeah, especially given the complexity and the diversity, I think, of what we have to pursue, certainly is helpful to have more resources at the table, right? Correct. Because it is uh, capital intensive business. Yeah, indeed. You know, before we go into another topic, just one thing that sort of you, you mentioned that I thought was kind of interesting is sort of the novel partnership structures that you sort of pursued with Beijing and Gilead. Given that a measurable number of our audience is sort of new to the BD and the deal-making side of things, what's one piece of advice you'd give to the broader audience on how to uh, get a deal done? What's one initial piece of advice that you think is like the most important thing to keep in mind in that process? Look for synergy and appreciate what the other party brings to the table. Too often, at least in the past, we made the mistake to look on the other side as simply a, a financial and technical supporter. The reality is there's a tremendous amount of intellect and smart ideas on the other side of the table. And you have to see very quickly where there is a true synergy between the two companies. Once that framework is in place, then coming up with creative financial flexibility is something that it's almost natural because both partners now want to create a partnership. They want to enter into this collaboration and they will be very respectful for each other's needs and sensitivities. That's the word I would look for. The unique thing is look for synergies and look on both sides of the equation, not just we as a biotech and what is it that we need. It's what the partnership needs because that's where we're going to be successful. Yeah, absolutely. No, that makes a lot of sense. So, you know, with that, as you sort of think about the trajectory and the history, sort of looking back at biotech, you know, I think you mentioned that, you know, we're now in the fifth decade of the industry. What do you sort of see for the future in terms of modalities, trends, open problems that we have yet to tackle as a discipline? Yeah, I think biology and medicine afford us a tremendous amount of flexibility. We've only have maybe cover 10, 15% of what a potential targets for different approaches and modalities for drug development could afford us. It is very clear, and the trend has been set in the past decade or so, that we'll continue to see a lot of effort in oncology. 40 plus percent of the companies in biotech are focusing one way or another in, in oncology, as is Shoreline. But there are other disciplines that I believe are going to be built on successes that we saw with technology platforms, antibodies, RNA therapeutics, gene therapies, and now cell therapies. 
I'm also seeing trends on a refocus on neurological disorders. CNS is attracting a lot of interest, has always been very difficult to crack, but I think we are now armed with more and more knowledge. And it's certainly a very good idea to bet on good, strong ideas in CNS. So that's another discipline that I believe uh, it's going to be interesting to follow this decade. And one of the my personal biases is the microbiome. That was obviously had attracted a lot of interest, like anything else. It went through the valley of death, but I think we're going to see resurgence of efforts in microbiome and ultimately some very smart, creative modalities coming out of the effort in this. Past that, you know, there's lots and lots of technology platforms that can lead to new ways of thinking and addressing different diseases. And But those are the three areas that I believe are going to be very interesting to follow in this decade. Yeah, for sure. You know, I've got an interesting sort of thought experiment I'd love your input on. Given your business background, when you look at the expansive disease, and my understanding there's about 10,000 diseases out there, we've got therapies or potential treatments for a small subset, let's say 5 to 10%. What do you think it's going to take to go cure the other 90%? And why do you think it hasn't been done yet? Yeah, tough question to answer. An easy answer would be, it just takes enormous amount of time and effort to develop a drug. And we simply don't have the critical mass to parallel process the other 90% of potential targets. That's the easy answer. Now you multiplex that with additional challenges. There's a lot that is unknown about most of the molecular basis of these diseases that we can approach. So we need to continue to bet heavily on, you know, basic science and basic research to build applied programs based on the knowledge that comes out. And that's a difficult and lengthy process. So I wish we had 10 times more scientists, you know, working on this disease around the world. We don't. And that, as we said before, is also capital intensive. It takes a long, long time. You know, you need that kind of a special breed of investors to understand the risk reward profile. And it's been slowly building. Now, we are an industry now that has exceeds in market capitalization, the trillion dollar market capitalization mark. Now, that's enormous amount of progress, still less than the market capitalization of a single tech company, that's Apple. (laughs) And that tells you how much more room exists for us to grow. But, you know, there's a shortage of scientific and and engineering talent that is coming out of our universities globally, not just the U.S. And that, of course, is a rate-limiting factor. Very interesting. You know, I'd love to maybe just drill in on the financing side of things and offer maybe another leg of this thought experiment, which is to say, if ROI or IRR did not matter in the context of drug development, how do you think that would change what we do as an industry? If you indirectly asking money is not an issue, go out and attack all diseases that you can, then that would eliminate one of the critical factors, right? Which is financing a very capital intensive line of business, but it doesn't address the lack of talent, right? Our universities simply don't produce and not focusing in the US only. I'm talking about that's a global phenomenon. Yeah. Sufficient engineer, number of engineers and scientists that want to focus on healthcare to create new medicines. Yeah, indeed. I think that makes a lot of sense. And obviously, it's definitely education and training, right? Is perhaps something that we collectively as an industry perhaps should have a, a greater hand in enabling, perhaps. Exactly. 
So that said, you know, any last parting words of wisdom you'd like to share with other budding entrepreneurs or other folks in the space as they look to also engage in their own war on a disease? Really nothing else than sharing my own experience. I've been in the industry and in R&D for over three decades, and it's been an enormous amount of fun and enormous amount of rewarding experiences that they have so that I never felt I work in a single day in my life. It's been an honor and a pleasure to be working in an industry that has the potential to change the lives of millions of people and their families. Wonderful. I think that's something everyone hopefully should be able to look forward to is the mission and the impact that they have, right? When working in biotech. Exactly. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, with that, Cleanthus, I wanted to thank you again for joining us on the podcast today and would love to have you back on in the future as you bring more of these programs to the clinic and then eventually to market. Thank you. I appreciate the invitation. It was wonderful talking to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by Alok Tai. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Biotech2050Pod. Again, that's Biotech2050Pod. Until next time.